This podcast is brought to you by the Administrative Committee of the Presbyterian Church in America, promoting the unity, purity, and progress of the church. Learn more about the Administrative Committee and support its work by visiting PCAAC.org. Welcome to Gifts and Graces. All Christians have communion in each other's gifts and graces, says the Westminster Confession. So on this podcast, we help you and your church benefit from the gifts and graces of other parts of Christ's body. Each episode, we bring you a seminar, sermon, or discussion from church leaders across the country and around the world designed to promote the unity, purity, and progress of the church. This is Gifts and Graces. On this episode of Gifts and Graces, we get to hear from Dr. Alyssa Yukiko Whitebrook as she shares how we can look at and learn from art. Dr. Whitebrook is an author and associate professor of art and art history at Covenant College. This episode was originally recorded as a seminar delivered at the 2023 General Assembly and sponsored by Covenant College. Let's listen as Dr. Whitebro introduces us to the practice of redeeming vision. So again, thank you for joining me here today. Um, And since you're here and not at another seminar, I'm going to assume that, well, if you're my pastor, you have affection for me, but I think in general, you have affection for art because you're here and not somewhere else. Perhaps you love art so much that you are just excited that somebody in a PCA context is talking about art at all. (laughs) And perhaps you're an artist who maybe has felt a little forgotten by the church and forgotten by our denomination. Um, Perhaps you know that you should care about art. You've read all the reform stuff about how you should care about culture. But then when you actually go to an art museum, you're a little intimidated. You're not really sure what you're supposed to do next once you're there. Um, Perhaps you are a church that has an arts ministry, but you're not exactly sure how to equip your congregation to be able to do that well. Um, Or perhaps you feel actually already fairly confident about how to interact with art that you like. Um, But, you know, for some of you, that might be something like Margarita Haverman's Vase of Flowers. But you're not as sure what to do when you're looking at something that maybe you don't like. Um, Something like Piet Mondrian's painting, um, Lozenge Composition with Yellow, Black, Blue, Red, and Gray, because it's obviously dumb, or it makes you feel dumb, or you're pretty sure that his worldview is wrong somehow. Okay? (laughs) So... I wrote my first book, Redeeming Vision, a Christian guide to looking at and learning from art, because I wanted to offer the church a practical theology of looking. Because here's the thing. I really believe that our faith changes everything, including how we see. Being a Christian transforms the ways that we can look at art, even and especially the art that we don't like. Our faith provides a path for looking, not just guardrails about what we should and should not look at. And that's what I really want to talk through today, is what does this path entail? What does this path look like? 
I'm really grateful to be part of a tradition that has taken culture and visual art seriously as a category of theological engagement. And two main themes have stood out to me from the faithful work of Reformed thinkers. So just really quickly, first, theologians from Abraham Kuyper to Francis Schaeffer are insistent that God delights in both art and artists. We know that God is a maker, the creator of the universe, and we can see his pleasure in beautiful objects and spaces in the tabernacle, the temple, and even the court of Solomon. Bezalel is vocationally called by God. He's given skills and knowledge and the spirit of God to make furnishings for the tabernacle. And second, folks, again, like Schaefer and Hans Ruckmacher and even more contemporary scholars like Bill Jernis, have pointed to the Western church's history as being a primary patron of the arts and have said that the the church today has really lost out by losing some of that connection. So you might think, as many have, that engagement with the arts is then something that artsy people should do, right? Um, That artsy Christians should take care of that, and the rest of us, those of us who are not makers, can sort of cheer them on from a distance and that they'll sort of figure it out on their own. But the painter Makoto Fujimura, who I think many of you are probably familiar with, um, and others have insisted that all Christians, not just vocational artists or theologians, should participate in the richness of human creativity. And Fujimura is not just talking about making paintings or sculptures. He's arguing that the Christian life should be a generative life. Rather than directing our energies only towards defensiveness or critical deconstruction, we can, as Fujimura says, invite the abundance of God's world into the reality of scarcity all about us. I love that, right? We work from a place of abundance. And so I believe that we can be makers actually as viewers. By virtue of our image bearing, we are all, to borrow Andy Crouch's term, culture makers. Culture is what we make of the world. And so when we look at art and images, we can actually do something with them. We don't have to simply consume visual information or sort of wait around for an artwork to, artwork to stir our complacent souls. But because we operate from a place of abundance as beloved children of God who believe in the coming restoration of this world, our gaze can open up something new. So what I argue is that we need redeeming vision. We need redeeming vision that is embodied, loving, and transforming. And then our looking can actually be generative. It can lead to something more. It can lead to doxology and to confession. It can direct us to lament, to gentle curiosity, to shared delight. Our viewing becomes making when it grows our love for God and for our neighbor. So what does this mean when we're actually looking at art, especially, again, art that we might not initially like or art that might confuse us. So I want to spend the rest of our time today walking through these commitments of redeeming vision, vision that is embodied, loving, and transforming, as we consider these two paintings. They're both Dutch. I know that PCA folks have some affinity for the Dutch. Um, But they're made centuries apart, 
and seemingly different in like every other way, okay? Um, so first, embodied looking, okay? Because we believe in a God who made the world and who called it good, and because we believe that he will restore this creation and our bodies, our redeeming vision needs to take embodiment and materiality seriously. We cannot just care. We cannot just skip straight to what an artwork, quote-unquote, means. We need to pay attention to what it is. We need to pay attention to it as a thing. And you know what? Really, in some ways, that's harder to do with a painting like Margarita Haverman's because everything about it is kind of pushing you to see what she represents rather than inviting you to see it as a material thing. So we're going to have to use our imagination here because I can't spirit us all to the Metropolitan Museum of Art. But what you're looking at right on the screen is a, a photograph of an actual object. This is oil paint on a wooden board, 31 inches tall, 23 inches wide. But Haverman has blended away all of her brushstrokes so that we sort of see through the material to the subject that she represents. And it's pretty straightforward, a life-sized arrangement of flowers and fruit spilling out of this shallow, arched niche. So then again, our temptation might be to just kind of jump straight to, well, what do these flowers symbolize? Right? Why did she choose those flowers? Why the grapes? Um, and we might jump again straight to meaning rather than paying attention to how the painting functions as a visual thing. So in art history, we call the practice of close looking a visual analysis. Um, all my students in any of my classes get a little annoyed with me because I'm constantly asking them, what do you see and how does what you see make meaning? <laughs> okay, Michael's nodding his head in the back. So to, to analyze something is to break it down into smaller parts so that you understand how it works, right? If you want to understand how a wristwatch works or how a bicycle works or how a flower is pollinated, you break it down into pieces so that you can understand the whole. So we can do the same when we're looking at an artwork. Um, we can identify specific parts, and then we can figure out how they work in relationship to each other. And this is what I work through in the first chapter of Redeeming Vision. How do the formal elements, the sort of visual ingredients, that's the left-hand side of um, the left-hand column here, work together to create different formal principles? That's sort of like the flavor profiles on the right-hand side. So I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on this, but here I would argue that Haverman uses the formal elements of shape, color, and value to create unity and movement in what might initially seem to be a pretty frozen, motionless scene. Okay, I'm resisting the urge to jump in front of this and point at things to you. So just follow along in your head, okay? Do you see how Haverman actually unifies the whole composition through her use of repeated round shapes? Do you see all those circles and ovals, right, that's sort of repeating? And even the shape of the bouquet itself is this oval. And so they almost work like links in a chain, sort of move, it unifies the whole thing, but also moves your eye around, your eyes around the painting, right? They're sort of tracing loops and links. Something similar is also happening with color and with value, so with light and dark. 
do you see how we can sort of follow this trail of white and pale pink kind of up and down the bouquet, right? Or there's this red-orange hue of the fringed pom-pom-like flowers that form a visual bridge to objects in the shadows. We might notice the, the scarlet veining on stems and leaves and then catch the red glow of grapes in the bottom right. And that slow, repeated perusal of this painting also reveals charming details. Actually, I'm going to go back to this one. Um, there's that fly that's resting on the tulip petals that I love. There's a speckled butterfly that's perched nearby. There's a striped snail. There's just more and more to see the longer and longer that you look. There's tiny ants on the grapes and apples on the bottom. There's delicate veining on every leaf. There's ruffled edges of flower petals. There's drops of dew clinging to foliage. There's these delicate little centers of minuscule blue forget-me-nots and kernels of wheat dancing on whisper-thin stalks. We can even notice the yellowing and curling of some of the leaves as a sign of their decay. So it's, it's easy to think that Haberman's painting is just an accurate but simple document of a pretty bunch of flowers. But if we spend a little bit of time looking at it, our close looking reveals the care and the skill with which she approached the work. Not only does she purposely arrange the composition, the light, and the color to move us through the painting, but she also rewards us for our efforts with delightful little details that we might miss otherwise if we just jump straight to meaning. So let's keep looking curiously, asking more questions to see what we can learn from this artwork. How does this make meaning? How, what is this artwork saying? We might have been taught that an artwork's meaning is sort of locked up inside the object itself, and that if we just had a key, we could unlock it, and then there would be meaning for us to grab right there. Like, if we just knew the artist's intentions, we'd know what the painting means and, and be able to judge if the work is good or bad. But here's the thing. I want to argue that our commitment to embodied looking means that we actually have to take three things seriously. We have to take the artwork, the object seriously, which is what we just did. We have to take the artist seriously, and we will, but we also have to take ourselves seriously too, okay? All three of these things are important because we are not a floating eye outside of and untouched by time and space and culture. God, in his goodness, made us creatures bound to time and place. And acknowledging our finitude and our embodiment when we're looking at art means actually paying attention to what we bring with us to the artwork. Okay? So one way that I like to talk about this is something that I call our archive. Our archives are all of the images that we've seen before that you might not be able to necessarily name. You might not really be able to call them to mind. But things that you have seen before, you've sort of filed away, and those help you make new sense of things that you see, right? So you can think about it like a filing cabinet, but now I tell my students that it's more like the Google algorithm for the Google image search because they don't know what filing cabinets are, okay? Um, so... 
what does Haverman's painting remind us of? What file folder in your head might that go into? Sometimes it's easier to think about which ones it doesn't fit into, right? You're not going to file this painting away under your, your, uh, your file for, say, victory or, like, church meetings. Like, this doesn't fit in that folder, right? But maybe it reminds you of a really lush wedding bouquet. Maybe it reminds you of hotel paintings that sort of fade into the background but are really pretty. Maybe it reminds you of a botanical illustration because of how detailed it is, right? All of those things are things that we actually bring with us to the painting. Um, and so some, someone who's actually really familiar, perhaps somebody in here who's really familiar with plants, might also notice something strange about this painting. Despite the compelling naturalism, despite the high level of detail, this bouquet is actually a physical impossibility. Roses, hollyhocks, irises, marigolds, tulips, and poppies don't all bloom at the same time. Okay? So when Haverman makes this painting, that means that she's not making something that she's plopped down in front of her and she's just copying it from life. This is a fiction. This is something that she's created from her knowledge of these plants existing elsewhere. Although the details make this look like a copy of reality, Haverman is actually giving us something new. What's, what's going on with that, right? We'll circle back. Now, remember, there is one more important point on that triangle. We need to take the artist's body seriously. That is... Although an artwork might reflect universal human longings or delights, it's still made in a particular time and place and for a specific purpose. Certain conventions or cultural practices shape artwork's choice of subject, their appearance, their use. So we can honor the human limitations of an artist by being curious about his or her context. And these are the kinds of questions that I talk about in, in chapter two. Who was the artist, patron, and original viewer? What was the original location and purpose? What cultural events, expectations, or belief systems shaped the artist? And then my favorite, what can we not know? Right? Because sometimes there's going to be questions that we can't actually answer. But with a little bit of study... We could learn that Haverman's vase of flowers is just one example of literally thousands of paintings produced in the Netherlands during the 17th and 18th centuries. The growing middle class fueled by Dutch global exploration, colonization, and trade, along with the rippling effects of the Protestant Reformation, created this truly extraordinary demand for artworks for the home. And so rather than making artworks that were holy or luxury items in churches or palaces, paintings in the Dutch Republic became part of everyday life, and they depicted everyday life as well. Sometimes I joke that the first Instagram really was the Dutch Golden Age because there were just so many images being made and sort of recycled over and over again. And furthermore... Instead of presenting a humanist ideal, um, like their Catholic counterparts, largely Protestant Dutch painters tended to present the world as it, as it was, assuming both the world's brokenness due to the fall and its inherent dignity as something called good by God himself. 
So this meant that everyday objects and scenes in art could actually embody theological truths. So something like um, Jacob Van Rysdale's Jewish Cemetery, you might look for things like the fallen tree as a symbol of the death that has been brought into the world, but then you have a rainbow in the background, right? This also meant that everyday objects and scenes in art could embody theological truths. So we might want to understand evasive flowers as a solemn warning, where the poppy, for example, could be a symbol for sleep or death, or the forget-me-nots could be a symbol of memory. The hyacinths could denote faith. We could try to get into sort of like the language of the flowers. Now, one approach in Reformed and Christian circles has really been to sort of stop here and to explain Haberman's um, correct worldview as part of a Reformed Christian circle leading to good art making. If art is a mirror of a culture, then Haberman's art is going to be good because she was part of a culture that assumed true things about God and the world. And we should want to look at reflections of good cultures and true ways of thinking. Here is the limitation, though, because still life paintings were not merely theological or philosophical illustrations. They weren't just pictures of ideas. They were actually doing a lot more than that. And the images that we look at today also do a lot more than simply provide illustrations of ideas. Here's what I mean. The development of the Dutch economy and national identity also shaped the content of still life paintings. It's not just their theology, it's actually what's also what's happening um, in broader society. Okay? Artworks from the first half of the 17th century typically displayed locally produced goods like cheese and meat because they were celebrating the newly formed Dutch Republic's self-sufficiency. It's sort of this early like buy local, you know, like showcase of the Dutch Republic. Um, however, as the Dutch Republic um, and, and their, their seafaring increases and they are increasingly dominating global trade and establishing colonial outposts, their paintings start to get more and more crowded with exotic objects. So Chinese porcelain, shells from the Caribbean, Middle Eastern textiles, exotic fruits. So in her 18th century painting, Haberman included blooms imported from Turkey, from South America and from Africa, right? She is still part of this bigger culture. She's just not thinking, how can I make a picture of theology? And then let's not forget that tension that we noted earlier between Haberman's close attention to detail and the acknowledgement that this is a fictional bouquet of flowers that, in addition to not all blooming at the same time, also sort of defy gravity. These departures from complete naturalism actually prove her mastery of her medium. Her ability to concoct a believable reality demonstrates her actual skill as an artist. So she, like hundreds of Dutch artists before her, calls attention to her own presence, reminding us that we are looking at a made thing, not a natural occurrence. She wants you to make sure that you know that this is something made. And, and here's the thing, those different approaches, emphasizing Dutch Protestantism, Dutch politics, or artistic achievement, those don't have to be in conflict with each other. Those can exist simultaneously. A vase with flowers emerges from multiple converging social contexts and can serve multiple purposes. 
So we've looked with embodied vision, paying attention to the objecthood of the painting itself, acknowledging our own finite selves, what we bring to the work, and then being attentive to the artist's body, the particularity of Haverman's own historical and social context. Our second principle of generative looking addresses our motivation. We must begin from a position of love. And I want to be clear here that I don't mean a position of loving art or just like loving culture. Rather, as Christians, it's our love for God and for our neighbor that should fuel our encounters with visual culture. So in practical terms, one thing that that means is that we refuse to make ourselves the center of an encounter with an artwork, right? So that means that it can't just be about our taste or our judgment. If we are looking in order to love God, then we can find opportunities to wonder at his power, to delight in his presence, and to confront our own idolatry. Likewise, our love for our neighbors, past and present, means that we anticipate finding common grace, that we also pay attention to how artworks might be malforming us to practice, to participate in liturgies that objectify or demean other image bearers. So, I mean, that all sounds good, but how can just a vase of flowers, just a pretty still life, actually help us grow in our love for God and our neighbor? Well, when we look generatively, why can't Haberman's evasive flowers grow our love for the creator God who dwells with us? Haberman insists that we look more closely at the minutiae of our world created by an all-powerful God, an infinite God who yet numbers the hairs on our head, feeds the sparrows, and cares about just how many little forget-me-nots there are in this world. So the delight that Haverman expresses over the shiny shell of an ant, the smooth, luminous skin of grapes, the pillowy hollyhocks, all of that should slow us down too. Her attention to creation can encourage us to do the same. By attending to the details of the world, we're reminded of God's presence in the particular and the everyday, not simply the vast and the sublime. Can't our looking become doxology? Can't it become praise? This, in turn, leads to a second opportunity to love God more fully. Haberman's self-conscious acknowledgement that her painting is a constructed thing reminds us of the loving commitment that God has made to the world he has made. We can imagine the time that it took for Haberman to study individual specimens of plants and insects, to build up layers of paint, to attend to all these little tiny details. And then she announces her pride in her creation because she signs it in that bottom corner as if it's etched into the stone itself. We marvel at Vase of Flowers even more when we realize that it's not simply a copy from life, but something purposely crafted with imagination and skill. So shouldn't we apply that same wonder to the world that we live in? Haverman's regard for her flowers and snails and grapes are a dim, but I would say really helpful shadow of God's deliberate attention to us in this world. And so rather than simply reducing a vase of flowers to a moralistic allegory of life's vanity or a materialist claim to economic success, we can respond with something new, 
with renewed wonder at the creator God who made and sustains this world and promises to renew it in the end times. That's redeeming vision. That's being generative with what we see. And this brings me to my third commitment, being open to transformation ourselves. Because I want us to be willing to learn from art, not just about art. Haberman's invitation to close looking has, uh, and delight has really taught me a lot about attentiveness. It has made me more curious about the world around me and truly more thoughtful about practicing the presence of God. When I engage Haberman's painting with redeemed and redeeming vision, I'm not merely accruing interesting knowledge factoids or checking off a list of good art. Instead, I'm building new ways of being in the world. I'm learning how to pay better attention. Now, all of this might seem straightforward when we're talking about something as lovely and familiar as a really gorgeous still life painting of flowers. But what when about when we're looking at something like this, right? What does embodied, loving, transforming looking do here? We're going to use the same steps. We're going to first pay attention to the object itself. Piet Mondrian's lozenge composition with yellow, black, blue, red, and gray is an almost two-foot square canvas rotated 45 degrees so that it hangs like a diamond, like a lozenge, on the wall. There's an irregular grid composed of perfectly straight vertical and horizontal black lines that divides a white background, resulting in these sort of truncated rectangles and occasional triangles. Mondrian fills in some of these shapes with flat color, black, yellow, red, and blue, and despite the title, there is no gray. (laughs) While the painting may seem almost childlike in its simplicity, Mondrian creates unity and balance by using line, shape, and color in ways that are deceptively complex. Mondrian's network of lines both divides and unifies the composition. Those narrow black lines are less than an inch wide, and they contrast sharply with the white background. But while the lines are all the same width and color, they are irregularly spaced. They interact in different ways with the canvas as a whole, and they create variety within unity. Even the shape and orientation of the canvas functions as part of this network. Likewise, the color may seem simple, but Mondrian's strategic application pulls the paintings together in surprising ways. Again, I really want to be just like pointing at things in front of this, so bear with me. (laughs) Okay, the black rectangle on the left, we see that one, right? Do you see how it sort of sucks in light? It feels a little bit heavy, and so it sort of weighs that part of the composition down. But that weight is contrasted, it's countered by other hues, like that sunny yellow triangle that almost acts like a helium balloon, and it's pulling everything back up. Do you see how the tiny scarlet triangle on the bottom left edge of the painting, I think it's like a dash of hot sauce, you know, just like a little bit of sriracha right there. And it's warming and balancing the larger cobalt blue shape in the right corner. If you didn't have any one of those, everything would feel off balance, 
Okay? So together, and in careful proportion, the colors maintain this buzzing energy of carefully balanced forces. In color, line, and shape, Mondrian creates subtle but compelling variety using a very limited set of formal elements. Together, they form a cohesive whole that is anything but uniform. Okay, now, the second part of our embodied looking, what are we bringing to this painting? What does it look like to us? Maybe you're thinking of a patchwork quilt block, um, a geometric puzzle for toddlers. Um, you know, there's, there are ways that the brightness and the simplicity of this painting um, might suggest objects from childhood. On the other hand, those same kind of clean lines and geometry might also spark our archive of things that we classify as quote-unquote modern, right? So maybe our stereotypical idea of modern art, um, maybe even something we've made fun of before as something that anybody can do, right? I know. <laughs> maybe it evokes a connection to um, something like the facade of a modern skyscraper. Um, hair care products. <laughs> Right? Maybe an Ikea shelf. <laughs> Again, acknowledging our archive, the ways that we almost unthinkingly categorize and respond to this work doesn't form the basis of our engagement with it. But recognizing these responses helps us then ask better questions about the artist's embodiment. What was Mondrian's context when he made this work in 1923? Did he see it as being childlike or did he see it as being more modern and cutting edge? Well, here's Mondrian, looking very serious. He did not, Mondrian actually did not begin as an abstract painter. He was trained at the Academy of Fine Arts in Amsterdam, where he painted mostly representational landscapes. And then as a young man, he was introduced to the, uh, the Theosophy movement, the, the Theosophical Society, which was a spiritualist movement that mixed elements of Buddhism, Hinduism, with ancient Greek philosophy and modern science. Very exciting. Theosophists emphasize the inadequacy of science alone to comprehend reality. So instead, they said that everybody should be seeking a higher spiritual truth. And for Mondrian, this had implications for his painting practice. Because rather than trying to simply replicate the, the material world, he sought out elementary forms that could be understood as building blocks for the whole universe. So from 1909 to 1914, Mondrian's paintings increasingly moved away from representation. He abstracted from nature until his paintings were only formal elements. Now, in 1917, while most of Europe suffered tragic losses of life, property, and infrastructure during the Great War, Mondrian co-founded a movement called De Style, which is literally the style. <laughs> And this artistic movement proposed a single aesthetic for all of the arts, for painting, for sculpture, and for architecture. Rather than making artworks that emphasize the individual or a national style, the style artists wanted to make art, buildings, and even furniture that drew from those fundamental formal elements. They believed that all of the arts should be integrated, creating harmonized environments where people could connect to a new universal consciousness. Why do they want to do all of this? Because it was World War I, right? And nationalism, 
they saw as having driven this huge conflict that had devastated Europe. And so they were looking for a unifying force to help rebuild things back. De style artists were utopian. They believed that this new universal aesthetic consisting of straight lines, primary hues, black, white, sometimes gray, could bring about a harmonious post-war life. Art and life would merge into this total satisfactory whole. And this is what it would look like. Beginning in 1919, Mondrian painted his studio walls white, and he began hanging rectangular colored panels next to and behind his geometric paintings, so that you, couldn't, you could uh, almost not tell where his paintings ended and his walls, his sort of reliefs on the walls began. The living space and the artworks became extensions of each other. Meanwhile, Mondrian's colleague, Garrett Ritfield, designed a whole home around these same principles of integrated universality. The Gestalt artists were convinced that the right kind of art could solve all of humanity's problems. And if you're wondering, yes, IKEA does have some of its roots in the same kind of design philosophy. <laughs> okay. So, whether or not we like the stark geometry and colors of Mondrian's painting, where does a loving look lead us here? Okay. Although Mondrian was influenced by theosophy, I'm going to say that there are ways that his work still resonates with a Christian understanding of the world. For example, at the heart of the Gestalt movement is the recognition that we are more than material, right? That science, the scientific method, though valuable, cannot fully account for our experiences as embodied souls and image bearers. Furthermore, de Stael artists acknowledged the brokenness of relationships that existed. While their work was directly responding to the trauma of World War I, we can see how that conflict is just one manifestation of the ruptures between ourselves, our environment, and our God that resulted from the fall. But loving vision does go hand-in-hand hand with seeking truth. So while Mondrian might identify some of the same problems that Christians recognize in the world today, his proposed solution is different than what we would point to. Mondrian's savior is the spirituality of abstract or non-objective art. He claims that the erasure of individual distinctiveness can provide a path to a utopian future. But we might also see him demanding that everyone else become more like him in order to achieve a paradise on earth. And that's a pretty different vision of paradise than what is described in Revelation 7-9, right? Where John sees a vast multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language which no one can number standing before the throne and before the Lamb. The God who commanded humans to be fruitful and multiply while filling and cultivating the earth welcomes a diversity of people into his throne room in heaven. In mysterious fashion, God chooses to work within the particularities of human cultures. Jesus is incarnate in Roman-occupied Palestine. He speaks and dresses and eats and teaches within the boundaries and rhythms of that, of, of that culture, while proclaiming good news for all people. And later, the Apostle Paul extends this remarkable tension when he uses the language and structure, even, of Greek philosophy to explain gospel truth to people around the Mediterranean. And so, if Mondrian gets all of this wrong, then what does transforming vision look like here? 
how can we be open to necessary change, not by becoming more like Mondrian, but learning from him? In this, Mondrian's painting can reveal something of our own idolatrous desire to refashion our reality according to our definition of what is pleasing. What happens if rather than critiquing Mondrian from a distance, we turn his work like a mirror on ourselves? How often do we think that the world would be a better place if everyone all agreed with my notion of what is beautiful, with my notion of what is hard work, justice, prosperity? How much easier would it be if everyone spoke the same language, had the same sense of humor, liked the same music? Wouldn't our churches, our denomination, be more pure, more efficient, more peaceful if everyone's ministry commitments and preaching style and worship liturgies and budgeting priorities and cultural engagement looked exactly like yours? (laughs) Redeeming vision (laughs) allows us to respond to Mondrian's painting not simply with criticism of him, but with something new, a recognition and confession of our own idolatry of self. You see that? Mondrian's desire for a harmonious world echoes the very human longing for right relationships to be restored. That's a good thing. But his efforts at a universal aesthetic confuse human distinctiveness with the source of our trouble. I love this. When we look closely, we see that not even Mondrian can remove his own humanity from his work. In lozenge composition, we find the tiniest wobbles of the black lines and repainted sections along the edges where he seems to have changed his mind about should the black line go all the way to the edge or not. Despite his claims to universality, the painting still bears the mark of the particular because Mondrian, like us, cannot escape his own creatureliness. So this is redeeming vision, looking as a creature embodied, formed by our loves, and in need of transformation. Our looking can be generative, making something new from the abundance of grace that we already inhabit. We can look at Margarita Haverman's exquisitely detailed floral painting and respond with doxology, praising God who created this world from an overflow of his love and chooses to still be present with it. And we can look at Piet Mondrian's abstract painting and respond with confession, acknowledging the ways we want to remake the world according to our own rules, ignoring the gifts of our neighbors in favor of our own notions of perfection. Both artworks can prompt, in different ways, growth of our love for God and our neighbor. So this is an invitation. It's an invitation to a way of seeing not just art, but the world that we live in. And may God give us eyes to see. Thank you. You can hear more talks like this by subscribing to the Gifts and Graces podcast. You can also hear more content like this by attending a seminar at General Assembly. They are free and open to the public. 
Find out times and locations by visiting pcaga.org. Thanks for listening to Gifts and Graces.